Hello and welcome back to John Brown's Body. Now, it has been a little while since you've last heard from me, but we're jumping back into the episodes full steam ahead. Uh, so whether you are listening to this podcast for the first time with episode seven, or if you've been listening for a while now, uh, I still think it's quite valuable to give us a little recap of what's taken place over the last six episodes. So basically, starting from episode one, by the early 1850s, John Brown is neck deep in over $40,000 of debt from a number of failed businesses, and most recently, a failed attempt at a wool speculation in the London markets. At the same time, John Brown is secretly planning a slave uprising in Virginia, where he would raid the armory of a federal fort and use the weapons to arm a small army of freed slaves. This army would hide in the Appalachian Mountains and eventually invade the entire slave-owning South. But by the spring of 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act became law, which allowed new territories to decide for themselves whether they would allow slavery or not. The same month the Kansas-Nebraska Act was signed into law, Anthony Burns, a runaway slave from Virginia, was arrested on the streets of Boston, resulting in massive protests in the city. Over 1,000 federal troops were called in to shut down the demonstrations and escort Anthony Burns back to Virginia. It was the largest anti-slavery demonstration in U.S. history. But John Brown had to miss this event because he was fending off yet another lawsuit levied by a number of New England woolen mills for over $60,000. By the fall of 1854, five of John Brown's sons started making preparations to move west and establish farms in the Kansas Territory. They became part of the free soil majority residing there in the territory. By the spring of 1855, it was time for John Brown's sons and the other residents to vote on a territorial legislature and form a new constitution. But on the day of the election, a force of more than 6,000 Missouri ruffians invaded the territory and cast thousands of illegal ballots in favor of pro-slavery legislatures. After hearing about the election in Kansas, John Brown put his plans of starting a war in Virginia on hold and heads west with another son and his son-in-law, smuggling dozens of guns by foot into the Kansas Territory. In the last episode, John Brown was called to action for the first time to defend the free soil town of Lawrence from another invasion from the Missouri Ruffians. This last incident in Lawrence ended without bloodshed and with friendly terms for the free soil defenders of Lawrence. But still, John Brown was disappointed. He was hoping for a real battle. And soon... That wish would be granted. The following episode of John Brown's Body contains graphic depictions of violence and racist language that some listeners may find disturbing and is not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Part 19. A Crime Against Kansas and the Caning of Charles Sumner. Washington, D.C., May 20th, 1856. Charles Sumner, a senator from Massachusetts, is speaking on the Senate floor. Sumner is 45 years old. He is a member of the new Republican Party, and he is the most outspoken abolitionist in the Senate. Charles Sumner is reading his entire epic 100-page essay, The Crime Against Kansas. In the essay, Sumner 
an academic lawyer before he was elected to the Senate, is detailing the multitude of crimes committed by the Missouri Ruffians and the pro-slavery forces in Kansas since the passing of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. Within the pages of Sumner's 100-page indictment, there was a number of insults aimed towards many Southern senators. One such victim was a senator from South Carolina named Andrew Butler. Sumner muses, The senator from South Carolina has read many books of chivalry and believes himself a chivalrous knight with sentiments of honor and courage. Of course, he has chosen a mistress to whom he has made his vows, and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him. Though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot, slavery. There's a lovely double meaning in that last sentence from Sumner. On the one hand, like the chivalric knights of the 14th century, Andrew Butler himself has taken a mistress, the ugly institution of slavery. But on the other hand, there's a not-so-veiled implication that Andrew Butler had affairs with his slaves. By the 1850s, it was a well-known secret that many slave owners had sex with their human property, or forced them to have sex, or, or raped their slaves. So on the floor of the Senate, Sumner, in so many words, accused Butler of raping his human property. I really like Charles Sumner. But unfortunately for Sumner, Andrew Butler wasn't present on the Senate floor to hear the insult. Where was he? I'm not sure. He was probably explaining to his wife why the cook just gave birth to a light-skinned baby. But Butler wasn't the only subject of Charles Sumner's criticism. Senator David R. Atchison of Missouri was also called out by name when Charles Sumner was describing the vicious miscarriage of justice which took place on the elections back in March of 1855. Sumner says, Among them, according to his own confession, was David R. Atchison, belted with the vulgar arms of his vulgar comrades, arrived at their several destinations on the night before the election. The invaders pitched their tents, placed their sentries, and waited for the coming day. With force, they were able on the succeeding day in some places to intimidate the judges of elections, in others to substitute judges of their own appointment, in others to wrest the ballot box from their rightful possessors, and everywhere to exercise a complete control of the election, and thus, by preternatural audacity of usurpation, impose a legislature upon the free people of Kansas. Now, all of this was completely true. David Atchison, a sitting U.S. Senator, was in Kansas on that election day and aided the Missouri Ruffians. But again, Atchison wasn't present to hear the accusations against him. Now, where was David Atchison on that day? It's the early morning on the next day in Wakarusa County, Kansas Territory, May 21st, 1856. David Atchison is sitting atop his fine black stallion, looking over the little town of Lawrence, Kansas. Behind Atchison is a force of more than 700 Missouri ruffians. Sheriff Jones had just entered the town with 20 mounted deputies to issue a federal court order to arrest a number of free soilers and seize any guns and ammunition that they could get their hands on. Jones was successful. 
This huge, ruffian force outside of the town had caught everyone completely off guard, so the town's leaders had no choice but to comply with Jones's demands. About a dozen men were arrested and over 100 rifles confiscated. So Jones and his posse left the town and met back up with the army and camped outside of Lawrence. Jones told Atchison the situation. He told Atchison that no resistance had been made and that the town had given up peacefully. Still, Atchison had come all the way from D.C. to shoot some Yankees, and he decided that the army would still enter the town and destroy the Free State Hotel and the two Free Soil newspapers, the Kansas Free State and the Kansas Herald of Freedom. Expecting a much more violent affair, Atchison had written a long, passionate speech, which he still read aloud to the army before their march into Lawrence. In the speech, he assured that the men would be paid as if they were U.S. federal soldiers, but they could still help themselves to the property of the town's residents. He ended the speech with this. And on the manly continents of each, plainly see his high and fixed determination to carry our letter to the lofty and glorious resolves that it has brought him here. The resolves of the entire South and of the present administration, that is, to carry the war into the heart of the country. Never to slacken or to stop until every spark of free state, free speech, free n****, or free in any shape is quenched out of Kansas. I say, under all these circumstances, I am now enjoying the proudest moment of my life. But I will detain you no longer. No, no, boys. I cannot stay your spirit of patriotism. I cannot even stay my own. Our precious time is wasting. No hasten to work. Follow your worthy and immediate leader, Colonel Strongfellow. He will lead you on to a glorious victory, and I will be there to support all of your acts and assist as best as I can in all of your acts and assist completing the overthrow of that hellish party in crushing out the last damned of abolitionism in this territory of Kansas. With great cheers, the army then marched into Lawrence with zero resistance. First, they seized and dismantled the printing presses of the Herald of Freedom and the Free State. The pieces were dumped into the river and the two buildings were burned to the ground. Next, the two cannons were placed directly in front of the stone facade of the Free State Hotel. The first cannon was loaded. The fuse was lit. The cannonball missed the hotel entirely. Instead, the cannonball went screaming over the hotel into a nearby hilltop where many of the residents had fled. Luckily, nobody was hurt. The second cannon was then loaded. This time, they hit the building but it didn't seem to do much damage to that thick stone wall. The cannons were quickly reloaded and about six more rounds were fired into the Free State Hotel, each shot doing little to no damage. So a new plan had to be made. They decided to abandon the cannons and instead use the remaining barrels of gunpowder to blow up the building from the inside. So about three barrels of gunpowder were rolled inside the lobby. A fuse was drawn from the barrels to the soldiers outside on the street. The fuse was lit for about three minutes, the ruffians watched anxiously as the little spark crawled its way into the Free State's front doors. 
a massive explosion sends smoke and shattered glass from all of the windows, and even shattered the windows of the surrounding storefronts and houses. But still, the Free State Hotel was still standing. So a handful of ruffians entered the hotel with torches and oil and set fire to the remaining support beams. Within minutes, flames were pouring out of the shattered windows. And a few hours later, the Free State Hotel collapsed into a smoking pile of rubble. The fire had also jumped to the surrounding homes. Once the Free State Hotel was destroyed, the ruffians looted the homes and shops along the main street. And by sundown, the ruffians left Lawrence. Four homes had burned to the ground, and dozens of shops and businesses were now empty and destroyed. Sheriff Jones said that it was the best day of his life. That following afternoon, back in Washington, D.C., on May 22, 1856, Republican Senator Charles Sumner from Massachusetts is writing at his desk on the Senate floor. The chamber is mostly empty other than a couple of other senators talking near the entrance. Then suddenly, in walks Preston Brooks, a 37-year-old congressman from South Carolina, and Senator Andrew Butler's first cousin. Congressman Brooks is carrying with him a very expensive cane made from a special hardened tree sap which gives it both a deep black and translucent effect. At the top of the cane was a heavy, solid gold handle. Congressman Brooks approaches the desk where Sumner is sitting. Brooks says, Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech twice over carefully. It is a libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler, who is a relative of mine. Charles Sumner looks up from his papers. He rolls his eyes and begins to stand. And that is when Preston Brooks begins beating Charles Sumner with the golden end of his fine Piragutta cane. Sumner falls to the ground as Brooks continues landing blow after blow onto Sumner's head. Almost immediately, Sumner's face was covered in blood and he could no longer see. To make matters worse, Sumner was stuck underneath his desk, which was nailed to the ground. So Sumner pries the desk from the floor with his back, all the while receiving shots to the head from the heavy handle. Eventually, Sumner was able to make his way to the aisle, and the blinded man tries making his way up the aisle to escape. But Brooks continues the beating and snapped the cane in half. Congressman Brooks then retrieves the half of the cane with the golden handle and continues his assault on Charles Sumner. By this time, Sumner is lying in the fetal position facing the ground. Brooks's friend was standing at the door with a revolver, preventing anyone from helping poor Sumner. But finally, a few men were able to pry Brooks off of Charles Sumner's whimpering and bleeding body. Charles Sumner suffered severe brain damage from the attack and never recovered complete use of his fine motor skills. Preston Brooks received little more than a slap on the wrist, a $300 fine, and eventually continued occupying his congressional seat until his untimely death the following year. The only thing that really changed after the caning of Charles Sumner was that the legislatures from now on, both in the North and the South, began going to work armed with revolvers. Part 20, The Potawatomi Massacre. May 23rd, 1856, the day after the caning of Charles Sumner, somewhere on the Ottawa Creek between Osawatomie and Potawatomie, James Townsley sits dumbfounded in his tent. James Townley is an immigrant from Maryland who'd been living in the territory for only about a few months before he joined up with the Free State Militia. The previous day, 
James Townley was furiously driving his team of six horses from his home on the Potawatomi River north to aid in the defense of Lawrence. But by the time he arrived at Middle Creek, he learned that it was useless. The town was destroyed and the ruffian army was nowhere to be found. So Townsley made a camp with Captain Dayton and his Free Soiler company. Nobody seemed to know what to do. They were counting on those guns and ammunition that were seized by the ruffians, and the men who were arrested would surely give information about most of the other Free Soil militiamen. The sack of Lawrence was a huge blow to the morale of all of the men. But by midday on May 23rd, John Brown arrives at the camp on a horse. Walking behind the horse are his four younger sons, Frederick, Owen, Watson, and Oliver. Driving a small cart with the band is his son-in-law, Henry Thompson, and riding in that cart was a man who went by Mr. Weiner. Each of the men were armed with two revolvers and a short sword which resembled a Roman cutlass. John Brown approached Townsley. They had met in the previous winter when they were defending Lawrence for the first time and Brown asked Townsley how far his ranch was from Dutch Henry's Crossing. Townsley answered it would be about five to six miles up the river to the southwest. Brown then explained, I have just received information that trouble is expected on the Potawatomi, and I want to know if you would take your team and take me and my boys back there so we can keep watch of what's going on. James Townley was married with one child back at home. And if the ruffians were planning any attacks, he could sleep a little bit better knowing that John Brown and his boys were keeping watch. So he immediately agreed to take them back. The younger Brown boys each hop on one of Townsley's horses and the posse began making their way south, back towards the Potawatomi. After six hours of riding, the sun began to set over the plains and John orders the small band to break off of the main road and take a rest near the river. They were about three miles away from Dutch Henry's Crossing. Once the horses were tied off, they ate a small dinner, and John Brown pulled out a little piece of paper containing a list of four names. He shows the list to James Townsley, inquiring whether he knew these men, James Doyle, the Sherman brothers, and John Whitman. Of course, he knew the Shermans, Dutch Henry and Dutch Bill. He also knew James Doyle, a widower living with his two boys in a small cabin. He hadn't recognized John Whitman. However, he knew of another pro-slavery man in the area named Alan Wilkinson. John Brown asked if he could know exactly where they lived. According to Townsley's later testimony, this is the moment that Townsley realized that what John Brown was planning to do. He wanted to execute every pro-slavery man living along the Potawatomi River that evening. Upon this realization, Townsley refused to give any more information but Brown insisted. Townsley threatened to take his team of horses and head home then and there. And John Brown assured James Townsley that they were going to be keeping the horses until they completed their mission. Townsley really had no choice. His horses were his most valuable asset, and he needed to make sure that they would stay okay. So reluctantly, he agreed to stay. However, he would not witness or participate in the executions. That was fine by John Brown and his heavily armed young boys. However, the argument had taken up too much time. It was already pitch black out. They would have to wait until the following evening to mount their assault. So the next day, May 24th, 1856, the camp was quiet and tense. Silent hours passed as each boy prepared their weapons. Finally, the sun began to set 
and the eight men mounted their horses and made their way along the river. A few hours later, the posse arrived at the home of James Doyle. It was dark, but there was still a light flickering from the window of the small cabin. They decided to wait until the fire was out and the Doyles were in bed before making their attack. A few hours later, around midnight, the fire was snuffed out and the cabin went dark. The men approached. Brown pounded on the door and demanded that the men come out. James Doyle and his two sons emerged without much argument. Brown and his posse then marched the group of boys down the road. John Brown stops. He pulls out his revolver and shoots James Doyle in the forehead, blowing the back of his skull wide open. Watson Brown, a 19-year-old man, plunges his sword into one of the young Doyle's chest, killing the boy instantly. Oliver Brown, only 15 at the time, attempts the same, but doesn't manage to kill the boy with the first blow of the short sword. The other Doyle boy attempts to run away, but Oliver Brown runs him down and hacks him to death with the sword further down the road. The posse leaves the bodies there on the road and moves on. A few minutes later, around one in the morning, Alan Wilkinson and his wife have been asleep at their home for some time now. Mrs. Wilkinson was stirred awake by her dog's barking. She nudged her husband awake and asked him to investigate. But Alan Wilkinson dismisses it entirely and goes back to sleep. But moments later, the dogs began barking again. And this time, she could hear footsteps walking onto their porch. She again stirs her husband awake and shouts, Who is that? But nobody replied. Alan Wilkinson then asks the same thing. Who is that? I want you to tell me the way to Dutch Henry's Crossing, a voice quietly said behind the door. Alan begins giving them directions to Dutch Henry's Crossing, but the voice interrupts. Come out and show us. Mrs. Wilkinson did not let her husband leave the bed, but then the voice calls out, Are you a northern armist? Which meant, are you a pro-slavery man? Mr. Wilkinson answered, I am. The voice then calls out, You are my prisoner. Do you surrender? Gentlemen, I do, answered Wilkinson. He opened the door and John Brown, along with three of his sons, storm into the house. They seize Alan Wilkinson and start collecting all of the guns and ammunition that they can get their hands on. Mrs. Wilkinson begs John Brown not to take her husband. She said she is sick and helpless. John Brown asks, do you have neighbors? Mrs. Wilkinson said, so I have, but they are not here and I cannot go for them. John Brown simply answered, it matters not, and they left. Mrs. Wilkinson remembered hearing what she thought was her husband's voice shouting. The next morning, Alan Wilkinson was found dead about 150 yards from the house, hacked to death with short swords. Finally, around 2 a.m., the posse arrived at Dutch Henry's Crossing. There were four men staying at Dutch Henry's that night. However, Dutch Henry himself was not around. He had left the day before to recapture some cattle which had run off. But the posse still got a hold of Dutch Bill. While Townsley, Henry, Thompson, Frederick Brown, and Mr. Weiner kept guard over the guests at Dutch Henry's Crossing, John Brown and his younger boys marched Dutch Bill towards the Potawatomi River. 
After a moment, a gunshot was heard, signaling the men it was time to leave, and John Brown and his posse escaped into the night. The next morning, William Sherman, a.k.a. Dutch Bill, was found lying next to the creek. His skull was split open in two places with some of his brains washed away in the river. There was a large stab wound in his chest and his left hand had been chopped clean off. John Brown had calculated a successful attack. Five pro-slavery lives for the five free soilers murdered over the last two years. Charles Dow, Thomas Barber, J.P. Brown, Stewart, and Jones. John Brown wanted to strike fear into the South, so he came at night and mutilated the bodies with his swords. The attack was brutal. John Brown denied shooting James Doyle in the head, but I don't believe him. To me, John Brown is guilty of one count of murder in the first degree and four more counts of accessory to murder in the first degree. To protect himself, John Brown had his 19-year-old son kill one man and his 15-year-old son murder three others. For these murders, John Brown showed both sides that he was not playing by anybody's rules. Critics of John Brown complained that all he had done was escalate an already volatile situation in Kansas. The attack would only lead to more violence, and they were right. But remember, violence is exactly what John Brown wanted. John Brown didn't go to Kansas to bring peace. John Brown went to Kansas to plunge the entire nation into a massive armed conflict over slavery. John Brown could care less about the people of Kansas. He wasn't there to defend their democratic institutions or protect the property of Northern families. John Brown went to Kansas to spark a civil war in America. And the Potawatomi executions were just the beginning. Within weeks, companies of free soilers will face off against companies of ruffians in pitched battles, many of them commanded by John Brown. Not long after the attack, John Brown was hiding out at a friend's house when he was asked, Captain Brown, did you kill those five men on Potawatomi or did you not? Brown replied, I did not, but I do not pretend to say that they were not killed by my order, and in doing so I believe I was doing God's service. Then his friend asked, then, Captain, do you think that God uses you as an instrument in his hands to kill men? John Brown replied, I think he has used me as an instrument to kill men. And if I live, I think he will use me as an instrument to kill a good many more. Next time on John Brown's Body, the men of Missouri will exact their revenge, not on John Brown himself, but on his sons and grandchildren. The sources for John Brown's Body today came from The Life and Letters of John Brown by Franklin Benjamin Sanborn, The Kansas Herald of Freedom from Lawrence, Kansas, and some of the music came from the Library of Congress's Royalty-Free Music Archive.